The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. The five years of Jokowi's government has not been able to push back a tendency for increasing income inequality in Indonesia. In spite of all of these investments in social services, poverty alleviation, health services, that tendency going back three decades has not been reversed by the Jokowi government. When we look at it from the big picture, long-term perspective, we do see so much improvement in the nation. Life expectancy, for example, we've seen a massive improvement. The other human development indicators are also promising. So in that sense, I'm an optimist. In this episode, another term. What can Indonesians expect from Joko Widodo's second and final five years as president? Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Indonesia's President Joko Widodo recently won a second and final term in a rematch against his rival, former General Prabowo Subianto. It was a history-making election. 245,000 candidates vying for some 20,000 positions. The first time Indonesia has held simultaneous presidential and legislative polls. Five years ago, Jokowi won his first presidential bid, mainly because he was perceived as an outsider to Indonesia's powerful oligarchy, a small businessman and former mayor from a mid-sized city who was seen to represent the common folk of Indonesia. In contrast, Prabowo was regarded by those concerned about civil liberties as a throwback to Suharto-era authoritarian nationalism. So how did Jokowi's presidential performance earn him a second electoral victory? And where to from here? As Jokowi enters his second term, Indonesia is faced with stagnant economic growth, increasing financial dependency on China, the continuing need to deal with an unwieldy coalition, and an incoming vice president whom some regard as a hardline Muslim cleric. Will Jokowi change tack going forward, and will he summon the audacity and fortitude to implement much-needed reforms for Indonesian society? Joining us in the studio to discuss key challenges to Jokowi 2.0 is political sociologist Professor Fedi Hadiz. Fedi is Director of Asia Institute and Assistant Deputy Vice-Chancellor International of the University of Melbourne. Also with us is social demographer Dr Ariane Utomo from the School of Geography, also at the University of Melbourne. Welcome back to Ear to Asia, Fedi, and welcome Ariane. Hello. Thank you. Before we look at the specifics of the various policy issues now facing Joko Widodo and his government, how did he win that second term? What made voters give him another chance, Fedi? Well, I think he did just about enough to maintain the support of a large enough section of the Indonesian population. I think expectations of him when he was elected the first time were always preposterously too high. So the fact that he didn't meet those expectations really should not have surprised uh, anybody. But he did preside over economic stability He did preside over general political stability, 
And I think most importantly, he himself was not caught in any significant scandal. The fact that he wasn't involved in any sort of uh, corruption scandals, that nobody in his immediate circles uh, were involved in, in any of those things as well, I think went down well with the Indonesian people because they are so used to corruption scandals. So it's what he did and what he didn't do. Exactly. And I think the other thing that contributed to him winning was the fact that even though his opponent Prabowo is a person who can garner support levels that are sometimes close to that of being militant, uh, in reality he's a very divisive figure. As much as some people really uh, love him, Many people really fear him. So I think there might be a quite significant level of the population that voted for Jokowi, not because they necessarily liked him a lot, although some do, but because they are fearful, especially of Prabowo. Ariane, do you you agree with that assessment? Yes. I would also start by looking at population geography, actually, which is my field. Where did Jokowi perform well and who and how many voters uh, live there? Compared to the uh, 2014 election results, there are indications of pretty large swing of voters for Jokowi in the provinces where the high proportions of voters are located. So, for example, uh, there are indications of over 10 percentage point increase uh, in central and east Java where, you know, 30% of the Indonesian population live. Now, Ali, you did mention about uh, Jokowi's running mate, Kiai Haji Ma'ruf Amin. He's 75-year-old cleric, also leader of the Indonesian um, Muslim Leaders' Assembly. And he's also a senior figure in NU, the Nadlatul Ulama, which is the larger mass Muslim organization in Indonesia. Now, while many liberal Indonesians such as myself, uh, were disappointed with his choice of running mate, I think it paid off at the end, given the boost in votes coming from a region in East Java, which is known as the stronghold of uh, Nadlatul Ulama. So do you think that if it did boost his vote in some areas, when you talk about that uh, higher percentage in the larger population areas, Was that the choice of running mate or was that more about where his first term spending and his first term policies have had the biggest impact? I think the first rather than the later. But um, just commenting on your point there about where his spending was, uh, Jokowi also won quite uh, significantly in the so-called minority majority provinces. So these are provinces in eastern Indonesia where you got pretty high levels of ethnic and religious diversity, as opposed to the Muslim-majority provinces uh, in Sumatra, for example. Now, I notice here that also the quick count suggests there are substantial gains for Jokowi between 14 to 19 percentage points in places like uh, North Sulawesi and the predominantly Hindu province of Bali and also in East Nusa Tenggara and Papua. Now, in places like East Nusa Tenggara, which has like over a third Catholic population residing there within the province, there have been large-scale infrastructure projects during his first term. So that might be a contributing factor 
But secondly, I would uh, go with Pak Fedi's assessment that perhaps the lingering sense of fear or anxiety of political Islam that may rise along Prabowo presidency might also drive voters in those areas that, to vote a, for Jokowi. It's a little ironic though, isn't it, that on the one hand you talk about his choice of running mate assisting him in some areas and on the other it was a fear of uh, what Prabowo could represent. Well, the choice of Ma'ruf Amin was a very highly calculated move. I think that it was a given that the choice would be unpopular among some sections of Jokowi supporters, predominantly the sort of uh, urban, residing, liberal, you know, highly educated uh, kind of person, like Arihan. But... It was calculated that the choice of Ma'ruf Amin would nullify the ability of Prabowo to present himself as the sole representative of Islamic aspirations. Ma'ruf Amin being the head of the largest Islamic organization in Indonesia was very effective in restraining or confining the ability of Prabowo to present the election as a choice between a candidate who was pro-Islamic aspirations and one who was against it. Now, taken together, I think the calculation was right, that choosing Ma'ruf Amin meant gaining more votes among Muslims than losing the number of votes among secular liberals. So so what does that say about the role of religious politics and democracy in Indonesia in 2019? I think it's clear that compared to 30 years ago, Indonesia is a more conservative society. I think it's clear that Islamic politics is an important element in political contestation in Indonesia, important enough to be co-opted by the different parties that are in competition with each other. But that is not the same as saying that Islamic forces are on the verge of taking over the state or that Indonesia is about to become an Islamic state. Those are quite preposterous ideas. So what's happened really is with the greater sort of conservative nature of Indonesian society, political parties have tried to cater to their sensibilities. Now, that has come along together with being vulnerable, though, to criticism coming from fringe groups who talk about morality in absolute terms. So they would be criticizing the Nadatul Ulama of Ma'ruf Amin or the Muhammadiyah, the sort of mainstream organizations, as not being militantly Islamic enough, right? So... What happens is that a lot of these ideas, which 20 years ago would have been crackpot ideas, are now being mainstreamed into the Indonesian political discourse as mainstream political parties and mainstream Islamic organizations incorporate them into their own discourse to insulate themselves from criticism from the fringe groups because they fear that they'll take supporters away from them. And a point that you have made in another place is that that is not so different to what's happening in the US, in Europe at the moment. Absolutely. I think the parallel development really is that 
many ideas that are espoused by Donald Trump now, 20 or 30 years ago, would have been not only anathema to American public discourse, but it would have been completely foreign even within the Republican Party, which he now uh, has a stranglehold over. In Europe, the ideas of Nigel Farage, of Marine Le Pen, of Salvini in Italy, Gert Wilders in Holland, uh, the Austrian far right, these were ideas that were on the fringe. But because they resonate for particular kinds of reasons with increasingly large sections of society, particularly centre-right parties have come to incorporate these ideas into their own discourses, therefore mainstreaming into the general political discourse highly conservative, formerly crackpot ideas. Ariane, that assessment that uh, Fedi has just given us, is that, is that how you see it? Yeah, I have been thinking about why. Why is it the case that we are seeing this gaining momentum, not only of political Islam, but the kind of Islamic lifestyling in the more, everyday? More conservative forces? More conservative forces, but also increasing centrality of Islam and religion in the everyday life of urban middle-class Indonesians in particular. This could be just a natural consequences of the reform after the fall of Suharto in 1998, it unleashed a plethora of actors, including the fringe radical Islamists, if you like to say that. I agree with the observation that there's some sort of undercurrent um, towards a society where Islam and religion will be much more visible, not only in politics, but in the everyday life of Indonesians. But like what Fedi has said, I don't personally see this as a concern at this stage. Um, it's not like we're going to be a Islamic caliphate. That's right. <laughs> it's it's much more nuanced than that. Um, if anything, my speculation is that the growing appeal of this so-called Islamic lifestyling, as Ariel Herianto had referred to, is partly driven perhaps by global current of hyper-competition and precarious employment. You know, we live in an increasingly interconnected world. So just like in many places of the world, even like for the youth in Australia, for example, many educated young Indonesians um, may find it quite difficult to navigate their pathways for upward mobility. So, so you see it as a natural response to I the environment? I, I would think so. In the past, you know, if you study hard, you can graduate, get a good job and start a family and lead a comfortable middle class lifestyle. But with the changing nature of work and a more precarious employment, perhaps uh, Islam offers some sort of I don't know, a place of comfort uh, to soothe the growing, I don't know, collective anxiety driven by economic globalization. So, If I may just add to that a bit, it is because of those latter observations that I would suggest that it goes back beyond reformasi, actually. I think that if you do trace these developments, they go back at least to the 1970s. And... It is no coincidence that the same developments were occurring throughout the Muslim world. So in the Middle East, in Malaysia, in various Muslim-majority countries, you had growing Islamization since the 1970s. And that is not a coincidence because it occurs simultaneously with the growing interaction between 
local economies and the globalized economy, thereby changing the nature of work and you know, the matters that you just talked about. Um, work has been redefined. There's a greater degree of uncertainty. Your credentials don't provide you with the certificate to success. And right? a sense of missing out, which uh, is a, sense a global of missing sense. Out, yes. Uh, yeah, so social grievances get, I think, pent up. And there is no language of politics to articulate that. And this is a product of the Cold War. Throughout the Muslim world, this is a product of the Cold War. So the Cold War resulted in not only the destruction of the left throughout the entire Muslim world, but also the domestication of the liberal current and the social democratic current. So all you have really are Islamists and various shades of nationalists. And this is what you find in Indonesia, exactly. This, of course, brings us, uh, interestingly, to the question of the economy uh-huh. and one of the big challenges uh, for Jokowi. And you made the point, Vedi, at the beginning that he has brought economic stability, although he's not met his expectations. Uh, 7% economic growth was never actually achieved. But how healthy is the Indonesian economy right mm. now? I think it's a mixed bag, really. I mean, sure, in terms of GDP in 2030, Indonesia will probably be, what is it, uh, the seventh or eighth uh, largest country in the world. But, uh, and here's a huge uh, caveat here, inequalities have been on the rise, even though marginally it's improved in the last year. But just two years ago, really, Indonesia reached levels of economic inequalities that are historically unprecedented. I think today it is estimated that about 1% of Indonesians control 50% of the wealth by the World Bank. This has never happened before. And whilst you know a middle class has grown, estimates say 45%, 53%, I think if you look more closely at the data, a very large proportion of that 45% are on the borderline of the definition of middle class, which means they are precariously middle class. This is uh, something that, you know, Inaya Rahmani has talked about in relation to Islamic consumerism as well. That means that, you know, a sickness in the family, uh, a minor economic crisis can put them back to the struggling lower classes. So there's a great deal of uncertainty there, right? So these numbers don't reveal everything. More so, there are other numbers. Even though unemployment is at about 5 or 6%, underemployment is always at least 33%. And youth unemployment, and, youth, and it is a very young country, absolutely. is sitting, I think, at uh, well something like 15-16%. I think that's 15-16% of official unemployment. I think it'd be higher in terms of the underemployment. So these are huge challenges. Absolutely. Jokowi. And remember, uh, the Indonesian demographic, what's the median age? About 30 in Indonesia. So we're talking about young people who've gone through national education because it's compulsory. Therefore, they've developed high expectations, high aspirations, and then they get into a situation in which, well, I was going to say guaranteed, but nothing leads them to any level of certainty. And how do you make sense of it? 
How do you make sense of it? There is no language or politics to make sense of that. Islam comes in and provides, you know, values of absolute morality, right and wrong, which provides people with, uh, with, with a guide. How does Jokowi address that in his second term? He's already taken some measures regarding health care for lower income people uh, and education as well. But clearly a lot more has to be done. When you look at where the investment focus, the spend focus will be in this second term, do you think that's where, Ariane, that's where it's going to lie, the human capital, not the physical infrastructure? Well, he did say during the last debate that that's what's going to be his focus in the second term. So the shift away from physical infrastructure investment. So the roads and the bridges and the railways. That's correct. More towards human capital investment. If you look at the state budget for 2019, we do see an uh, increased allocation targeted for the bottom 40% of the population. So for example, there's an increasing allocation for the village funds and for the so-called PKH, Program Keluarga Harapan, the Family Hope Program. This is sort of like a social assistance uh, provided for the poorest of the poor family in Indonesia. So there is a growing pot of money allocated in that sense. But that doesn't give jobs to young people. It doesn't. Well, yes, as Pat Fedi had said, you know, we've got these high levels of inequality. And to what extent this, this kind of intervention and policy approach can be effective enough? Yeah, we have yet yeah. to see. I mean, it's still people are living a hand-to-mouth existence even with these policies. At the same time, of course, though, this is his second and final term. He can't run again. He doesn't have to be popular. What is to stop him simply putting the money where he thinks that it is necessary? Fetty, do you think he has the policies, that he has the, well, the will as well? Well, first of all, you've got to look at the structure of the budget. There isn't really a lot of money to play around with in the budget. So a large proportion of the budget, in spite of the... Uh, drawing down of the oil subsidies really goes to routine expenditures, mm-hmm. including paying for civil servants, uh, public sector debt, and so on. There's a really limited pot of money to play around with in the first place. So that's one constraint. The second constraint is this. It is a mistake to think that reforms are being inhibited by forces outside of the Jokowi coalition. The struggle in Indonesia has not been about reformers versus anti-reformers. There are anti-reformers in both camps. In fact, some of the people closest to Jokowi are as anti-reformers as you can imagine. So, with that sort of political consolation, how could Jokowi actually develop the sort of appetite to undertake large-scale reforms if he has to go against the forces that were responsible for him winning in the first place? the forces upon which he depends on maintaining his position. Now, it is likely that in the next parliament that the coalition supporting him will actually attain a majority, unlike in 2014. But I don't think they'll make any difference because what has inhibited large-scale reformist policies that overhaul things... That may help this gap of of inequality. ...is not coming from the Prabowo camp. It's coming equally from within the parties that support him, who are as connected to entrenched oligarchic interests as the Prabowo camp is. 
You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by uh, Indonesian political expert Professor Fedi Hadiz and Indonesia social demographer Dr Ariane Utomo and we're discussing what Indonesia can expect from Joko Widodo's second term as president. Fedi, that point that you make there about I suppose, resistance and the need to negotiate within his own uh, coalition brings us very much to the question of the oligarchs and their role in Jakarta and in Indonesia today. We said at the very beginning, when Jokowi first came to power in 2014, part of the reason that he was voted in was because he was seen as not part of this system. Is he now beholden to it? Well, first of all, I never agreed with people who said that he wasn't part of the system. This was one of my major disagreements uh, with analysts in 2014. There was no way that Jokowi would have reached the position that he attained by 2014 if he hadn't made deals with sections of the oligarchy. In fact, if you trace his political career in Solo, that was already being undertaken. And certainly... That that was his home. Exactly. And by the time he became governor of Jakarta, he was making deals with Prabowo, man, in 2012. So he's not part of the oligarchy in that, you know, he wasn't, unlike Prabowo, at the heart of the new order system of power, being... The, the, son uh, the, the son-in-law of, of Suharto being a lieutenant general, commander of special forces, etc. But clearly, he was somebody who could not have navigated through the oligarchic control political system if he wasn't able and willing to make deals. So from the very beginning, I had always questioned the degree to which that not only was he able to deliver on reforms that people expected to, but also whether he was even willing to, do, mm. to contemplate those. Ariane, that, that's a fair question, isn't it? Because arguably, why change a system that's allowed you to rise? Indeed. Um, I mean, just going back to how difficult it is, I recall a report suggesting that the parliament had a very poor performance in the last five years. Mm. So it was like maybe only six legislations were passed out of the 50 uh, priority draft bills. So I could imagine, you know, even with you know, influence on both sides of politics and oligarchs. It's just, it's just really hard to get things done. Why is that? What is it that makes the oligarchs so powerful in today's Indonesia? I, that may sound like an incredibly naive question, but is it simply money? Is it respect and standing? I mean, what is it that allows them to direct the direction of a country? Well, the 1998-1999 reforms in Indonesia... Yeah, freedom of the press, elections. That's major, by the way. I'm not, I'm not underestimating that. Quite strikingly, did not result in the eradication of the new order oligarchy. So the institutional framework had changed. But in the context of a system of power that is still dominated by the old forces. So what happened really was that after 98-99, the old forces were able to regroup to redefine themselves as Democrats. 
What happened was that the political parties, the parliaments, the social organizations that emerged after 98-99 came to be dominated by the same forces that had dominated the New Order era institutions. So, so is that just an integral part of the power system in Indonesia? It remains so at the moment. But how would you change that, given what you've just said? Well, first of all, 98-99 provided a window of opportunity You had a crisis of the oligarchy, but there was no organized reformist force to fill in the gap. And therefore, the oligarchy was able to regroup after a certain period of time. I think that was key. And my view of history is that history is very stingy. It doesn't give you a lot of opportunities. Uh, And I think that time passed and uh, where we're experiencing the ramifications of that, that Yes, it is a democracy, and I would not want to underestimate that because I appreciate elections. I appreciate, you know, being able to express my opinions without being, you know, uh, jailed kidnapped. or shot or kidnapped. And what the country, as, as, pu- su- as some of my colleagues were in the 1990s, uh, what they pulled off with this election was truly extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, extraordinary feat: 193 million people voting and all that. These are all great, great things, right? But it, it will necessarily be a very flawed democracy which maintains asymmetries in power, economic and political, as part of its very logic. Ariane, you're nodding there. Do you see any change to the role and the relationships with the oligarchs or is that just part of the system? The oligarchs will always be there, but I'm kind of more optimistic uh, because I feel that with the growing middle class, there's much more new money around. And with more new money, there's... Less power for the old money. That's correct. <laughs> it's good to have a, a note of optimism. I wanted Hopefully to... they don't just buy apartments in Melbourne, though. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to return to the question of economy and investment because that, for Indonesia, is quite caught up with... Uh, if, I, if I don't say foreign policy, I can say foreign relations because of the tight relationship with China, uh, which is pouring significant funds into Indonesia as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. But I suppose my interest is, does it come with ties? Fedi? Well, I think that uh, dealing with China always comes with ties. For one thing, I think it inhibits uh, the ability of Indonesia to participate independently in such things as conflicts in the South China Sea. That will seriously impact on Indonesia's ability to be a you know sort of mediator, especially if uh, the Chinese are also talking about Natuna Islands, which is you know an Indonesian island. But I think this is what we we need to understand. There's really not a lot of room to play around with the budget, right? So if you want to invest in infrastructure, you have to have private investment, and the Indonesian business class doesn't tend to take risk. They're used to playing it safe and being protected, you know. Uh, so the money has to come from outside. So money has to come from outside. Now, the Americans and the Europeans tend not to invest in infrastructure. They tend to invest in other things, such as you know, mining, and, you know, these. And, sorts and of even things. Australia invests more in New Zealand than it does in Indonesia. Well, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Given that there are three million people in New Zealand and two hundred sixty million people in Indonesia, so. China, China's Belt and Road Initiative and its generally outward-looking attitude or position, as projected by Xi Jinping, coincides with Indonesia's need for foreign investment. 
right? So China is the logical source for it. It benefits the agenda of the Chokowi government. Now, what sort of strings come attached to that? I think the degree to which that is to be clear will still, you know, need to play out. But we already see that, for example, they'd have to already tweak things having to do with uh, employment laws, because there is a convention in Chinese investment in infrastructure projects that Chinese manpower has to be used. So that already infringes upon. What is it? The policymaking independence of the Indonesian government, and I think we'll probably see more of that. And of course, this is complicated by the fact that you know America is being extremely erratic. So if the Americans say we're only concerned about putting up a wall against Mexico and leave the rest of the world to its own devices, well, that does leave a huge gap. Uh, with which really only China is capable of filling. And by the way, it's not just Indonesia that's trying to address and cope with this changing regional sort of constellation, but Australia, whose foreign policy really has been based on one principle, and that is follow the Americans. That's been the basis of the entire Australian foreign policy in in Asia. Australian government, of course, would argue differently. <laughs> of course, uh, but which we- actually raises a question, though, that, as you say, this this challenge, this uh, this uh, balance of power yeah. relationship between China and the US, and indeed Chinese investment, yeah. is a, a question for every country mm. in the region. Australia is. Uh, about to go to the polls, mm. and uh, we could be in for a change of government. Mm. Do you think that that will change the relationship between Indonesia and Australia? Look, I think that the fates of Indonesia and Australia are entwined, whether these countries like it or not. Because, so, which party, which prime minister, is really not that relevant? Well,、yeah. it is relevant in that certain kinds of issues, certain kinds of diplomatic problems might tend to arise with you know particular kinds of parties in power in, in, in either place. Some parties may care more about human rights; others not, for example. But In the long view, and more fundamentally, whatever happens in relation to the sort of more minute matters that may result in you know, big newspaper headlines from time to time, in general, really,、uh, Australia needs to have good relations with Indonesia. And whether Indonesia、uh, realizes it or not, and sometimes I think Indonesia doesn't realize it as much as it should, it should cultivate. Good relations with Australia for various things that Australia can offer Indonesia that other powers may not be able to or are less likely to. Let's finish with a little bit of crystal ball gazing.、Uh, we made the point earlier that、um, he doesn't have to be popular because he doesn't have to run again, but that doesn't mean that he will have the appetite, the will,、uh, or even has the political capital for major change. But what, Ariane, do you think are going to be? His priorities in this second and final term. Well, it's early days.、Uh, he did talk about、uh, investment in human capital, talking about increasing the productivity level of the Indonesian labour force. But again, those are campaign talks.、Uh, we don't know how effective that is going to be. You know, in the last week or so.、Uh, 
the conversations among uh, my own family and my friends in Indonesia is about uh, this idea that Joko is going to move the Indonesian capital from Jakarta towards one of the outer islands. What that might be has not been announced as and yet. And that would be a massive, expensive, it would be huge a massive undertaking. undertaking. Exactly. So... I'm excited, if you like, to see whether this would actually take place. Um, as and that would be an extraordinary legacy. It would be. I was uh, raised, I spent a lot of my formative years growing up in Jakarta, and there's a lot of things that I love about the city. But the reality is Jakarta is sinking. So yeah, it's the fastest sinking uh, city, city in the world. In the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, we've seen really uh, good progress, for example, with the opening of the MRT. But there are so many more things to do to make it a sustainable place to live. And with the growing population at the moment, it's about 10 million in the core and almost 30, uh, including the greater Jakarta region, is just very hard for anybody to govern effectively. So potentially moving the capital could achieve or help resolve many of the challenges, the broader challenges. Actually, the answer to that is I don't know. There have been talks about moving the capital for... 50 years or 60 years. But it never happened. Are you an optimist? With regards to Indonesia, yes, I am. I mean, you know, when we look at it from the big picture, long-term perspective, being a demographer, we do see uh, so much improvement in the nation. Just a general indicator, life expectancy, for example. We've seen a massive improvement in Indonesians' life expectancy from under 50 in 1962, I don't know, about 69 now. And the other indicators, you know, broad human development indicators are also promising. So in that sense, I'm optimist. Indonesian seems to have this knack of not being... Being self-critical? Yeah, they seem to be quite (laughs) happy with how things are going along. Um, Complacent. Complacent or getting on with it? I reckon getting on with it. Getting on with it. (laughs) Fetty, what about you? What do you think will be his legacy? Oh, I think uh, his main legacy would be keeping Prabowo out of power. (laughs) That's his main legacy. Uh, the second thing is, I think that he he has squarely put into the Indonesian political discourse the importance of paying attention to such things as healthcare and social services. I think that is important, and that is something that future governments cannot immediately, I think, uh, do away with because it's squarely, I think, in the discourse. Uh, with regards to moving the capital. Even rough government calculations suggest that the two phases that they talk about, whatever that means, uh, would cost close to 1,000 trillion rupees. Now, don't ask me what that is in dollars because I can't count that high. But that's an amazing amount of money. If the budget can't pay for it, again, where is the money going to come from? But those earlier points you made about uh, Jokowi and what he has put into the public discussion and and, and made part of the political lexicon, that's key, isn't it? I think it is, yeah. I think it is. I think that's one of the things that I think he would be fondly remembered for. I think he won't be fondly remembered for upholding human rights because he's certainly let everybody down there. But he has walked 
the talk as much as he could within the confines of a budget, mind you. You know, in terms of investing in uh, healthcare and social services, far from enough given the scale of poverty and disease and, and the breadth of the Indonesian nation, just the size of it. But it would be difficult now, I think, to just always talk about economic growth in Indonesia. And that's important, in spite of the fact that, in reality, the five years of Jokowi's government has not been able to push back a tendency that started in the late 1980s for increasing income inequality in Indonesia. So in spite of all of these investments in social services, poverty alleviation, health services, that tendency going back three decades has not been reversed by the Jokowi government. Now, if a government that has as its platform social equality and social welfare can't do it, you wonder about a future government. Gosh, so much to talk about. You know, I think I think we should uh, reconvene for another Ear to Asia podcast in the very, uh, you know, in the very short term. Uh, you raised there other issues such as human rights. I mean, there are just so many uh, questions that I could put to the both of you. But thank you so much for your insights and for joining Ear to Asia, Fedi and Ariane. No problem. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much. Thank you, yeah. Ali. Our guests have been political sociologist and veteran Indonesia researcher Professor Fedi Hadiz and Indonesia social demographer Dr. Ariane Utomo. Professor Hadiz is Director of Asia Institute and Assistant Deputy Vice-Chancellor International at the University of Melbourne. And Dr. Utomo is from the School of Geography, also at the University of Melbourne. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 1st of May 2019. Producers were Kelvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.